Pectus excavatum is an uncommon condition, but a highly impactful one for those who are born with it. What do physicians need to know about pectus excavatum when encountering it in practice? And what new advances are there in treatment? You are listening to ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Jennifer Cottle, host of Everyday Family Medicine. Joining me today is Dr. Don Jaruszewski, a cardiothoracic surgeon at the Mayo Clinic. Dr. Jaruszewski, welcome to ReachMD. Thank you so much. It's an honor to be here. Well, we're delighted to have you. We're really going through the nuts and bolts of pectus excavatum today. Can you first tell us about, you know, what really is pectus? How is it defined and and what really is the condition? So pectus is a range of disorders of the chest wall, deformities basically. And it can go either way. It can be an excavatum, which is caved in, or it can be a carinatum on the other end of the spectrum which is kind of humped out. The thing that gets complicated is, as you know, patients never follow the rules. And so often there's a large group of patients that fall in between and can even have a mixed deformity where the upper part of their chest is carinotomed out and fearly they cave in. So it can be complicated to diagnose and actually direct patients. And I see a lot of, talk to a lot of physicians that are really not sure, you know, exactly what does this patient have. Right. No, I, I think that's that sounds very familiar, and, I, and it's definitely one of the reasons why I'm so excited that you're you're joining us for this program because I think a lot of us could use a little bit more information. What are some of the typical symptoms and complications that can arise from this condition? There's a wide variety of patients presenting. Probably the most common that you know I hear about are the teenagers that develop it. And some kids are actually born with it. There are babies, but the majority of people will develop both excavatum and carinatum as they get into their uh, rapid growth years, you know, seven, eight, nine, and into their teens. And many, you know, parents will say, you know, I, I didn't even, I have no idea when this happened because, you know, my son doesn't let me see his chest anymore. And all of a sudden, I saw him without a shirt on, and you know, he's got this deformity and. And that's not uncommon. When you start looking at teens, they tend to have, you know, some chest pain, maybe exercise intolerance, um, but more at that point, it's, you know, what's happening? You know, why do I look this way? In contrast, my practice is also a large amount of adults. The adults I see are coming to me because of symptoms, and they can become incredibly symptomatic. Most of them have a story that, you know, I never had a problem. I had the deformity. I was, you know, did all kinds of exercise. But in my past, the past decade, I'm, I, I don't know if it's just because I'm getting old, but, you know, I've become intolerant to exercise. I used to, you know, run. Now I can't run more than a couple of blocks. I get very tachycardic, I have chest discomfort, chest pain. A lot of them have had extensive cardiac workups for chest pain, you know, and symptoms of angina. There is kind of an anxiety component that can feed into it too, where they'll say, you know, I'm starting to feel anxious. I feel like I'm suffocating. I can't breathe when I try to exercise or when I lay in certain positions. And, you know, these symptoms are tending to be progressive. It's, it's, you know, getting worse and worse. And, you know, I thought, you know, I, I, I try yoga or laying off it and, you know, this year is worse than last year was. 
And so I think the adult population is a very interesting preview of, of what happens to patients if they don't get fixed. Right. Well, that's very interesting. How many people are affected by pectus? Well, if you look at the textbook, the answer for that is one in 300 to 400 Caucasian men. So it is reportedly much more common in men and in white men. It's also the excavatum component is four times more common than the carinatum. But there is, you know, a wide spectrum of mixed deformities in between those two. I think, too, that probably women are underdiagnosed. I know that about 30% actually of the women that I see as adults have had implants placed that cover the defect or developed breast tissue during their teen years and really never realized that they have an excavatum. Before we get into how the condition is treated, as a primary care doctor, would I be able to tell how severe a pectus is if I saw a patient walking through the door? And is this something that with referrals, is this something I should be referring right away? Or you know, what are some things that we need to keep in mind before we discuss the treatment? A couple of things. It's very deceiving what the deformity looks like on the outside versus what's happening on the inside of the patient. Now, I'm speaking mostly to the excavatum because those are generally the much more symptomatic and treatable patient group. So when you see a defect that looks deep, it may not be creating cardiac compression. And that's probably the main problem with the pectus excavatum is when the depth of the deformity compresses the, the right heart. It can change outflow. It can back up blood into the hepatic veins. It can make patients extremely symptomatic. The defect that is round and bowl, it may actually be to the side of the heart so that the heart shifted over and not being affected. I've seen patients that have wide, flat chest that you look at and you go, well, they kind of look like they have an excavatum. But when you get a CT scan and an echo, the whole right side of their heart is compressed and the flow is significantly decreased. So I think what the patient's symptoms are, the history, the progression of symptoms, anything that explains or leads you to worry about cardiac output, endurance type things. So kind of the classic pectus complaint is I can do a, a short sprint but if I need to do anything further than that, I just can't do it. I, I fall out. And if you think about cardiac output, it's two components. It's heart rate, stroke volume. So the pectus patient, they start exercising. They become very tachycardic, and they increase their output with tachycardia, but they can't get volume because the heart can't expand to increase the stroke volume. So they drop off when everybody else keeps going. And it's a, it's a very clear pattern, both on cardiopulmonary exercise VO2 testing, but also in the description of patients. I think the decision to, to work up or to refer a patient is based on symptoms and then also on their request. Um, I think that there are a lot of patients that feel that how they look is a problem or they feel like they're significant, and those are issues that need to be addressed too. In my own practice, I had a teenager who took a shotgun and shot himself in the chest before I could fix him because he was being bullied by the way he looks, and I think 
we can't discount what's a visible deformity in this patient population. That's so sad to hear. It's understandable not only the physiological changes that a patient can experience with pectus, but also you know the psychological impact that it can have. And I think that's a really good reminder for us to, to be mindful and to pay attention to these things. If you are just tuning in, you are listening to Everyday Family Medicine on ReachMD. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Caudill, and I'm speaking with Dr. Don Jaruszewski, a cardiothoracic surgeon at the Mayo Clinic. So let's talk a little bit about treatment now. Um, can you first talk about how is pectus treated? There are several different options. One that I think is very interesting and lends itself to referring patients early is called the vacuum bell. So the vacuum bell was FDA approved for the U.S. Um, in the past year, and it is basically a pressurized suction cup that is worn an hour to two hours a day on the chest that can pull up and correct the defect in young children as they're growing. There is a certain element of family hereditary in this, not 100%, but about 20, 25% of patients will have family members. And it's very interesting because a lot of the parents, father or mother I've operated on, and now their kids are showing up with it, and we're, we're sending them for this vacuum therapy to try to prevent them from developing a severe defect and needing surgery as an adult. So I think that's a very exciting new treatment that's out there. For kind of the majority of the patients presenting in their teen years, mid to late teen years, and adult years, their options end up being surgical. And the kind of old-fashioned, what they called ravage, which was a big incision that we went in and cut out cartilage and rewired the chest, that has fallen by the wayside. And most patients now can be treated with basically braces. And they're stainless steel bars that we put inside the chest with a camera they're left in for three years, and then those bars are removed. And the patients do very well. They have excellent cosmetic results. From a cardiopulmonary standpoint, they improve significantly. You can see very abnormal patients that are you know, testing before surgery completely normalize. And so it's a very rewarding procedure. That's so interesting. How would you choose one particular procedure over the other? And what determines which procedure is chosen for which patient? Patients still have you know, a choice of what they want. And most of the older thoracic surgeons still offer the Ravage procedure, the open. I did for many years. And um, now I will only do that procedure if someone has significantly asymmetric chest or is so deep and fixed that it's not possible to do them with just the braces. I think the disadvantage of the Ravage is you create a fixed chest wall. The ossification and potential issues of not healing malunion are significant, and that's part of why I no longer do the procedure when, you know, unless absolutely necessary. The disadvantage of the stainless steel bars is they obviously hurt to have a steel bar rammed into your chest. And so the initial recovery is slightly longer with minimally invasive, even though it, they call it that, it's kind of counterintuitive, versus when you just cut out and kind of wire the chest together. For patients, they need to talk to surgeons and they need to get the full information. There's a lot of online information on chat rooms with patients you know, from both camps. 
so they can get the viewpoint from both sides. And you know, I think there's good and bad to both procedure. I personally prefer the minimally invasive. We do a ton of adults. I've done old as 72 years old and have done well. So I, I lean more towards that procedure. That's very interesting. Now, is that a procedure that you've modified in any way in your particular practice? Definitely. So the kits have been done with the minimally invasive for a long time. That's pretty much standard of care for okay. um, teens and younger. The adult population has been a little bit more difficult because the flexibility of the chest is gone, or not completely gone, but certainly much lower, and the component of cartilage is less. So it used to be thought that you couldn't do the procedure. So we've modified it and have used some techniques. It's called forced sternal elevation. It sounds like an archaic torture chamber, but it's we literally take a bone clamp and clamp it around the sternum, and it's attached to a bedside retractor that's like a crane and it pulls up and it pops out the chest before we put the braces in. That's one thing. The other one was that for a lot of the younger kids, they put a single bar in. For adults with a bigger, heavier chest, it was too much pressure, it was too much pain with one bar. So we put two, sometimes even three bars to balance out the pressure. And that, that's made a huge difference in patient recovery and outcomes. That is amazing. That is very amazing. What are the results and the outcomes that your patients have experienced with some of these procedures? So number one is marked difference in their ability to exercise and perform aerobic type activities. It's so rewarding. I have a whole file of patients that send me pictures of them running marathons with their medals, of you know skiing, doing things that they said they never were able to do or that they had lost the ability to do. That, I think, is critical. All of our patients, we do transesophageal echocardiograms, and in just looking at our adults 30 and over, the mean difference in cardiac output was increased by 65% after surgery. Wow. So you give these people like a turbocharge, mm -hmm. and they come into this procedure, they want it, they're excited, they recover, they get out there, and you know they kick butt, and it's a great group of patients. It's, it's an exciting field. I understand that some new research from the Mayo Clinic supports a particular approach to pain control after surgery for pectus. What can you tell us about this? Several things. Number one is we're looking at you know preemptive analgesia. So all our patients get gabapentin, they get IV dexamethasone, methadone, and Celebrex before I even operate. In the OR, then I do intercostal block with marcaine and steroid. And then post-op, I use a brand called OnQ, but they're subcutaneous catheters. And they're like soaker hoses that are pressurized with local ropivacaine. And they drip at 7, 8 cc's an hour down the sides, and so you thread them up under on the sides where these bars go through, and you can keep these in up to seven days. So the patients get discharged home with these, they call them pain balls, dripping the medicine. So our goal is to try to decrease the narcotics that patients are giving, and we use you know, gabapentin, we use ibuprofen, we use these other modalities, and they do. They still need narcotics initially, but the goal is to get them you know, through this and off as soon as possible. Our average hospital stay is two days, two nights, and it used to be five to seven days. So it's been a huge, huge change in the management of these patients. 
Absolutely. Wow, that's that's fantastic. And finally, I know that a lot of physicians are going to wonder about this is, you know, where can we go to get more information about this condition for our patients? Online resources. There are several sites devoted just to Pactus. There's Pactus.com, which is actually run by a former patient of mine. Adam did a really nice job. He's got all the physicians in the United States that do Pactus. He's got patient ranking and rating of the physicians. He's got information, publications that are coming out, quite extensive. That, that's one source. There is you know, individual sites that focus on practice from Dr. Nuss's center in Virginia, our center at Mayo Clinic, that you know, have extensive information available. But that in literature, more and more, I've tried to publish in some of the family practice. There's Journal of Osteopathic that's got an article I'm writing up now, just you know, trying to, to oh, get wonderful. the word out there. That's fantastic. And I still see patients that'll say, "Well, I saw my doctor, and they said it's cosmetic, not to worry about it." And you know, you do testing, and you're like, you know, you're in the 40th percentile for anaerobic metabolism and ability to exercise. You've got cardiac compression on your echo, and that patient deserves to be operated on, and it'll make a huge difference in their life. That is such helpful information, and I think a really good wake-up call for us physicians to really look at this condition a little bit deeper if we haven't been already. Many thanks to our guest, Dr. Don Jaruszewski, for joining us today. Thank you so much for coming on. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer Caudle, and to download this podcast and others in the series, please visit us at reachmd.com slash everydayfamilymedicine. We encourage you to leave comments and share the program with your colleagues. Thanks for joining.